Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your podcast. In... <laughs> Let's try this again. It's been a rough morning already, so pardon me while I make mistake after mistake. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2.5% of the most popular podcasts globally. And honestly, it's all because of my truly incredible guests. And I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game and who join me to absolutely help you get where you want to be in life and in business. These are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with you the essence of peak performance, and boy, do they. And today my guest is Ben Gay III, who just happens to be one of my very favorite people on the planet, and I make no bones about that. I'm not shy. Excuse me. Quite literally, the last protege of Napoleon Hill, Ben has been called a living legend in the sales world. And after 50 years in professional selling, he has been the number one salesperson in every single organization in which he has worked. Just to give you a little bit of background, at age 25, he was president of what was in the world's largest direct sales network marketing company, having been personally trained by fellow sales legends J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, William Penn Patrick, Zig Ziglar, and many other sales giants. Excuse me. And one of the most famous, popular, and powerful sales trainers in the world, Ben now writes and publishes The Closers. It's a sales training program that is, or series, that is considered to be the foundation of professional selling. Now, Ben has been my guest in the past, and his episodes are among the most listened to and downloaded episodes in the long history of this podcast. We've actually had people tell us that it was like listening to two friends sitting in front of a fire and just chatting about life, Napoleon Hill, sales, and anything you can imagine. Ben, welcome back to your Partner in Success Radio. It's so good to have you back. Thank you, Denise. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this ever since we discussed it. And uh, uh, I truly enjoy working with your folks. I've talked to a lot of them off the air. And uh, you lead a group of winners. I do. And, you know, it's because of this podcast. Honestly, when I say that, you know, I learn from all of my podcast guests who are my mentors, you're my my favorite mentor. I mean, you're the one I watch the most, the one that I will email and say, Ben, help me. And God bless you. You always do. I try not to abuse it, but you always show up for me. And honestly, this is how, this is where my energy comes from, is from learning from people like you from all over the world. Yeah, when uh, I, I used to do 300 or more live events a year. Uh, In my old age, I've gotten wiser and toned that down a bit. But I've always found that working with people and listening to them and interacting with them, I always learned more 
than I was being paid to teach them. And uh, so that's a, a lesson not lost on me. It, you have to learn. I was at a fundraising event many years ago with a dear friend of mine, the late, great Wade Cannon. And uh, it was early in my career where I was full of myself. And he came up to me at the end of the gathering. He said, Ben, when, when you're talking, he said, here's a little tip for you. He was always giving me tips. He said, here's a little tip for you. When you're talking to someone who perhaps has won a Nobel Prize in whatever their uh, expertise is, he said, it'd be a good idea to listen to what they have to say. And I said, That's, thank you for that. I, I'll try and remember that way. He said, it's too late. I had Ow. just spent apparently <laughs> half an hour lecturing a Nobel Prize winner on his or her specialty, and uh, it was all about me. So I learned that there's a lot of wisdom in any room or any broadcast that you do. You just have to listen. I had to learn that the hard way. I really did because I'm an introvert, introvert by trade, by by nature. It's just who I am. And I'm not often around people who are like actually standing in front of me. I can reach out and touch them if I want to. But I had to learn to listen. Here was a trick that I had to teach myself, too, to listen between the lines, so to speak, to use my empathy, to use my skills to shut up and listen. It was a little tricky, but I did learn it over time. Nelson Mandela was known as a great speaker, uh, but what he was most famous for in the inner circle was that he was a dynamic listener. And uh, so when he talked to you, he was acutely aware of what you thought and how you felt because he'd been listening with a capital L. Exactly. And I think when people learn how to do that, and fortunately you had somebody point that out to you, and I have as as well, because you don't know what you don't know, right? You just think you're, you know going along and everything's great and you're a brilliant conversationist and you're probably boring the heck out of people or insulting them or both. <laughs> or both, <laughs> and, yeah. Or both. And when somebody actually cares enough about you to say, hey, Ben, hey, Denise, you might want to ratchet that back a bit, take that with grace and dignity and learn from it. Well, it's uh, one of the more difficult ones to learn, but I... I've gotten so good at it, sometimes people go uh, to me, even in person, um, hello, are you okay? Because I was just staring at them intently and not interrupting them like they're used to. Um, so right. it's a little, you have to teach them that you're listening. <laughs> well, and Dr. Napoleon Hill, you know, I've read everything he's ever put out as far as I know, and some of it multiple times. One of the things that I love that you do on Facebook is that you, every day, you're writing something out of your notebooks, and you and I have had conversations about your notebooks. In fact, you sent me pictures, I think six pages of notes that you were going to share with me about when I asked you for a little bit of advice, and oh my gosh, I will never forget what you did for me. I just wanted to, and I hate this phrase, I'm going to use it anyway, pick your brain. You unloaded. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. So, 
That conversation that you and I had a month or two ago was one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. I'll never forget it. But one of the things that you do on, and I'm mentioning those notebooks because it's important to what I'm about to say, is on Facebook, you go through all of your notebooks and I can't, you probably have a room that's just stacked to the ceiling with notebooks because you're very passionate about keeping your thoughts in in place. And you always put something from your notebooks that is, I don't know how you do it, but it's always pertinent to whatever's passing through my brain that day. And you talk a lot about Napoleon Hill and some of the things that he would, you know, you would be doing and he would just look at you and say, hmm, well, that went well, which I don't think, I'm a Southerner, I don't think that was a compliment, i got to say. That when something blew up in my face, the most common response was, "That was interesting, Ben. What are we going to do now?" And who better to mentor you? And now, of course, you are the best mentor in the world, and you've got a new program. Before we we get too too far into this, I really want you to tell me about your mentoring dynamics program. What is it, and and why did you launch it? Well, it's extremely simple. Uh, Years ago, before when I met Dr. Hill, I was 25. He was 84. He was biologically old enough to be my great-grandfather. And uh, he had been hired to be my friend, basically. Coaching uh, was not a term that was thrown around in the human potential movement at the time. But he was hired to be my friend, a coach, an older guy who perhaps could guide me because I was running this huge company. And uh, up at 25, I was a high school graduate and had trouble balancing my checkbook. So it was uh, – that's one of the places, by the way, I learned to be quiet because I was afraid if I said anything, I would reveal that I was not qualified to be in the job. <laughs> but – what Dr. Hill did for me, people said, well, did he bring you tests and, and things? I said, no. He sat at the end of my conference table, which was my desk, and wrote things, probably writing books that I've since purchased and, and read, but sat at the end of my conference table listening. Uh, there, I never timed it, but there must have been times that we were in the office for three or four hours and not a word was shared. I was just going about my business and or he was sitting in meetings and so on. And then, as I think I've told you in the past, he would never criticize me in front of anybody else. I got where, like Pavlov's dog, I dreaded the click of the door. That meant the last person had left my office, the door clicked, and his head would slowly come up. And we were about to discuss whatever he thought I needed to know based on the last hour, two, three hours of what have you. Um, and uh, it, it was frequently very concise. He would say things. Uh, one time Zig Ziglar and a group took me out to lunch, and I asked him to go, to ask Dr. Hill to go, and he said, no, he wanted to stay there. So we went out. We were gone about two hours. We came back. He said, what was that about? And I said, well, they were – suggesting that it would be a good idea to change my name from Ben Gay to something that wasn't uh, so uh, humorous. And Pink. Uh, I always think uh, pink when I see Ben Gay. Is, <laughs> so he, isn't it pink? He, uh, I think it is. 
he said he listened to it, it was brief, but I said to them, I said to him, they want me to change my name, and they taken two hours to explain the concept to me. Doctor Hill said, don't do it, and went right back to writing whatever he was writing. Uh, one time, uh, Ray Considine, a great friend of mine, direct mail writer, speaker, etc., was in my office, and he was looking at something I had written. And he said, you, you use a lot of exclamation marks. And I said, yeah, I really like them. And it, it's the salt and pepper of writing, and it shows where the emphasis is and so on. Ray went back to proofreading whatever it was. And then when Ray got up to go to the bathroom or somewhere and Dr. Hill and I were alone in the office, he said, Ben, that wasn't a compliment. I, you know, I was taking bows over my use of exclamation marks. And uh, Dr. Hill had been listening to what Wade actually said, which was don't use so many. Unless they're quoting somebody, it's something, a subtlety that I didn't know. Uh, unless they're quoting someone and it, it's in quotes, you won't find an exclamation mark in a newspaper anywhere. They just ah. write what they're supposed to be writing. And they don't feel the need to yell and leap up and down and so on. So I, I haven't stopped, but I've cut back. <laughs> I, I don't want people to miss the point. But anyway, with Dr. Hill and Mentoring Dynamics, we, we already had a company called Leadership Dynamics, which was the forerunner of uh, Guest and the Forum and SciWorld and LifeSpring and all of those. It was the first of the modern human potential movement companies. And its sister company was Mind Dynamics. Uh, which was, again, the forerunner of EST and so on. So they were sort of a combination of the two. And uh, Dr. Hill and I were working on mentoring dynamics. He didn't really like working one-on-one with people. I'm billed as his last protege. I was almost his only protege. He really preferred to write and read into a microphone what he'd written. He wasn't a dynamic speaker and uh, was not the most uh, interactive person on the social level that you ever met. So I said, well, what we'll do is what we've done in Mind Dynamics and Leadership Dynamics. we do a train-the-trainer program. Uh, they will come to California to the home office for two weeks or a month or whatever it takes and spend that time with you and we'll outline what you're teaching them, even if we have to use the stenographer at the end of every day, and that'll turn into a training manual. And then they'll have the ability to go out. We'll be able to promote them as personally trained by Dr. Napoleon Hill, and we'll call it Mentoring Dynamics. He loved the idea, and we began working on it. And then he got uh, ill and died rather quickly after that. And so I put it, the idea on the shelf because in my mind it was this is totally dependent on Dr. Hill having trained the people. And since you can't do that now, uh, mentoring dynamics sort of went into a box of things to think about for 50 years. But then people are asking me, well, you know, you pass on what he taught you. You said he didn't have any courses or anything to work with you. He just listened and advised based on age and wisdom. I said, yeah, that's right. I said, well, you do that. 
Why don't you do that? So I've sort of taken it back down off the shelf because I had blown it up into too big a deal uh, as to what had to be done to get it going. Uh, I've been doing it with my coaching clients for, for years. I listen and advise them, and the advantage I have is I've been down the road Probably there are some exceptions, but basically I've been down the road. They're going down or about to go down. And like a Sherpa climbing Mount Everest, there's some advantage to wisdom and experience. So I haven't really changed what I've been doing, but I've relabeled it. I'm not going to use coach, uh, consultant I still use because I am to many companies. But as far as coaching goes, I'm not, um, I don't object to the term, but it's not really what I do. What I do is I've been down the road and I'm willing to share my experiences with you and my uh, most famous mentor, I've had many, but my most famous mentor, Dr. Hill, devoted his life to doing that, talking to successful people, making notes about what they told him and so on. So I sort of bring the wisdom of 501 people to the table, the 500 he interviewed and him. And uh, what he did was actually quite simple and common sense, uh, but he had the credentials to do it. And it's taken me a while, but I, I feel comfortable in saying I now have the credentials. So I'm taking on a few one-on-one mentoring clients in uh, what I'm calling mentoring dynamics. And uh, there's a a retainer, minimum of 10 hours of being together. I find it it takes 10 hours to really get rolling and we won't achieve anything if we don't spend that time together. And it's like Dr. Hill. We had very few scheduled meetings. He frequently flew out from South Carolina and didn't tell me he was coming and just walked in the office. So uh, on, a, on a casual basis at the client's request and on the client's schedule, uh, I'm aggressively uh, mentoring people much like Dr. Hill did me. For those of the mathematicians um, amongst your listeners, I said retainer. The retainer is three thousand dollars to start. That gets a hundred uh, at, at my hourly rate, three hundred dollars. That gets them ten hours of intense training, and we don't just get on the phone and talk about the weather. We set up an appointment based on when they're ready and the questions they have written down and the concerns they have and so on. So when I hit the go button, we really get mileage out of the time. And it's billed by the minute. I have uh, clients who uh, will call and say, okay, you know that thing we've been talking about? I'm ready to go. Yes or no? And I say no, and they say fine, and we're off the phone. If I remember to write it down, and I rarely do, that would probably be a minute of time. So it's not like calling your lawyer and he says hello and you just spent 15 or 30 minutes, as the case may be. So it's, uh, I've reached the age and uh, disposition where I want to aggressively pass on instead of passively what Dr. Hill taught me. And anyone interested, just give me a buzz. I'm easy to find. I 
am so excited that you did this, and I understand why it took you so long. Listen, I am often in the grip of imposter syndrome. You and I have talked about this. It's We all do it. We're all guilty of it, and we all have to fight it and say, hey, I can do this. I should do this. I will do this. But sometimes, you know, the bottleneck is you, and in my case, it's me, no question. It always is. <laughs> I know. I have talks with myself frequently in the kitchen with my head in the refrigerator cooling down. It doesn't work, but I try. (laughs) I've told a lot of audiences, Denise, that uh, I think it was President Jefferson, whoever sent Lewis and Clark out on a mission that lasted two or three years to find out what was out there, what what was the United States, and uh, what was on this continent. And they came back and reported. And I said, years ago, Dr. Hill and other people sent me out to find why people were successful in sales in particular, that sales, marketing in their life and so on, uh, why they were successful and why they were unsuccessful. And I'm, I'm reporting, like Lewis and Clark, I'm reporting back. I let the audience think about that for a second. And then I said, it's you. <laughs> I love That's it. that. It's you. <laughs> it not is. The, it's not the weather. It's not the secret you don't know. It's not something no one's told you. It's you, good or bad. I, I had a little term used to, back when millionaire meant more than it does today. Uh, I would say he's a self-made millionaire. And I said, no, no, you got to understand. Everyone is self-made. The millionaires like to talk about it. You know, I live in the deep south, and we're, you know, there's a lot of oil fields stuff going on here. And some of the most interesting people I have met during my time in this part of the country have been serious millionaires. You'd never guess it. You wouldn't have a clue unless you personally knew them or knew their family. You just would not know. Have you ever read the book, The Millionaire Next Door? You know, it sounds familiar, and I may well have. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, and you may have it. But it talks about that. Uh, People say, I'd like to meet a millionaire, and I always think you've met several. You just didn't know it because, A, you weren't listening, and, B, they weren't saying, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire. A a cute little story, a a friend of ours, a friend of Gigi, she's from the area, as is he. He's old, classical, was standing outside a diner one day in his normal attire. And they have thousands of acres of property. And I don't, I've never looked in his bank account, but I would guess millions of dollars. But in his casual attire, the only thing I've ever seen him in with work boots, a lady came out of the the, uh, cafeteria. And said, how are you today? And he said, I'm fine. And she took $10 out of her purse, folded it up, and put it in his shirt pocket. He said, no, ma'am, I, I really don't need that. She said, don't be proud. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so did he wind up keeping it? Did he take the money? <laughs> yes, he did. Because he said it would have hurt her feelings, and this it would have to say, yeah. "I've got more money than you've ever dreamed of having, man." Right, <laughs> and he could turn but that so, over to somebody who actually did need it. Yeah, but he, but he said, "Oh, I'm sure he did." He said, uh, 
he helped build the Boys and Girls Club here, and I know that was a $200,000 donation right there. Uh, but uh, he did say, I, I think maybe I ought to upgrade my outfits. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend here in the oil field country. He's passed on now, but he came by. I had a, um, a jewelry store, and he came by, and he said, you know, I think I'm going to go buy a new car. He said, I'll come back and show you later. I said, okay. Promptly forgot all about it. Next thing I know, he walks in, tosses me the keys, and says, take it for a ride. Tell me what you think. I went out in the parking lot. It was a Rolls Royce. I said, no, I will. I'll slam it into four cars and a light post before I get out of the parking lot. No, but thank you anyway. <laughs> I mean, he was just so casual about it. And the next time, I have to say this, the next time I saw that Rolls Royce, he treated it like it was a pickup truck. It was destroyed. It was $250,000 for it, and it was wrecked. It really was. But, you know, he was in the oil field business, and he would throw oil parts and pieces and laborers in that Rolls Royce and just go on and you'd never guess that he was a multi, multi-millionaire. I've known a lot. I've always been in a business where, you know, come join me, you can make a lot of money. So you had to talk about the money and you know, I'm doing well. You too can do well. When I joined Holiday Magic Cosmetics with my running buddy, Jimmy Rucker, you know, we were flat broke. When we went to the meeting to hear the opportunity and sign up, uh, I did it, as we drove into the parking garage under the Trust Company of Georgia in Atlanta, it dawned on me we didn't have the money to get the car back out. It was $3, and that was roughly $3 more than we had. So when we left, we ran the gate. But the people we joined uh, – most of them, the sort of starting point was they were making $10,000 a month, and this was in 1965. So that's almost 100000 a month in today's money. So rather quickly, Rucker and I were talking about, well, yeah, we make 10000 a month. It wasn't true, but, and I'm ashamed to say that, but we, we had stepped into the land of exaggeration. And when we started making 10000 a month, we said we're making twenty. We're making twenty. We're making thirty. When the first month, first month we made forty thousand, four hundred thousand in today's money. Rucker said, "We got to cut this off. Uh, you know, it's getting harder and harder to believe, even though it's true." So we that day stopped talking about money. No one has any idea what I make, how much I have, or anything. They make their own suppositions, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong, but I never say anything. That's not the issue. The issue is the quality of what you know and your ability to execute it. As Dr. Goldfoot was forever saying to me, action, Ben, take action. Because I had a tendency to, you know, well, one more meeting and I need this more piece of advice or I need this or I need that. Uh, and then I went to the other extreme. I became one of those fire, ready, aim people. Somewhere in the middle, there is a happy medium, and I think I finally found that. But when you've got the facts you need or you're close to having the facts you need, take action. When we started the call center business with the National Communication Center in 1976, the world's first call center, I remember what Dr. Hill said. And I took action, even though I was sort of 
inventing the airplane as it took off. And uh, a few years later, when I left the business, 98% of the business was not what I had envisioned. Only 2% was. Uh, But we made course corrections as we went along. And uh, my original concept was wrong, but it was close enough to build the world's largest call center, answering service, et cetera. And that was strictly based on taking action, get going. You'll figure it out as you go. And I have learned that from you because I I admit I'm a – I don't even know how to say this without yelling at myself. I like to have things in a row. I want my ducks in a row. I want to know where I'm going, how I'm going to do it, which is always at war with my intuitive senses. My intuitive senses say, just do it. Go darn do it. But then the logical part of my left brain, right brain, they're in a war all the time. It gives me a headache. And my my right brain will say, well, do you have everything ready? Well, no. And then my intuition saying, Go go read Ben Gay. Move. Go do something. <laughs> Move, darn it. So I'm getting better about it. But I wanted to go back a little bit because you were talking about, you know, when you first started, um, when when Dr. Hill came in to mentor you, and there was a big age gap there. And at that age, I remember being 25, and I was ungodly arrogant. Yeah, if an 80-year-old man had tried to tell me to do anything, I'd probably just look at him funny. So how did you, when did it finally dawn on you, if it had to dawn on you, that he knew stuff? Well, I was raised in the South, and although it's probably true everywhere in the South, it is a religion that you respect your elders. Somebody asked me one time, what was my favorite teacher's first name? And I said, my teachers didn't have first names. Uh, and for all I knew, they went into a closet at the end of the day and hung upside down till the next day. I never saw them out anywhere, you know, didn't bump into them in society or in a store or what have you. So uh, he came credentialed. He was, the day I joined Holiday Magic, my sponsor, uh, Bill Dempsey, gave me two things. It's really funny because two years later, both of them were working for me. He gave me an old recording scratched up record of the strangest secret by Earl Nightingale and he gave me an old beat up copy of Think and Grow Rich he said you're young and inexperienced these will help you listen to the record tonight and start reading the book tonight and stay at it until you almost have it memorized so I did but therefore when Dr. Hill walked in my office I didn't know who he was he was brought in by William Penn Patrick the owner of the company and I hopped up and said, hi, I'm Ben Gay. Bill looked at me like I was crazy and said, Ben, this is Dr. Napoleon Hill. I said, oh, my goodness, how are you? Pleasure to meet you, doctor. And he said, call me Nappy. Nappy. (laughs) Nappy. I said, I'm very sorry, but I can't do that. And that started a a two-and-a-half-year battle. Uh, I, I would structure entire conversations so that I didn't have to say Dr. Hill or anything, because I knew if I said Dr. Hill, he'd, we'd be into the nappy debate again. So he came, he came credential to me. One of the things I refer to the Closers series, my famous book series, which, by the way, we just came out with the Closers Part 5. But uh, 
the closers series in general and the closers part one in particular, the one that sold almost 11, 11 million copies, 10 and a half million, I think I could document. Uh, they're my passport to credibility. You know, does he know what he's talking about? This is the guy who wrote and published the, the closers. Oh my God, you're in. Well, when Dr. Hill was brought to my office and properly introduced, so I knew who I was talking to, uh, he was, his passport to credibility was I had read Think and Grow Rich. And I'll have to admit, you said you've read everything that he wrote. I never tried to tackle the law of success. I looked at it, it looked like the New York phone book. And uh, and he had told me that Thinking Go Rich was what he should have written to start with. It was a distilled version of the law of success. And uh, so uh, he was in with me just because he was Dr. Napoleon Hill. And I'd been raised to respect my elders. And he was certainly my elder. So I settled down. But you're absolutely right. I, I really believe that... Uh, uh, that I had neared perfection. I was Ben Gay, 25-year-old multimillionaire head of the largest direct sales multi, uh, multi-level marketing company on the planet at the time. What could you possibly tell me? <laughs> how, how to balance my checkbook might have been a start. Yeah, but, uh, I was just thinking that. <laughs> so I had, you know, I got that far based on I was voted wittiest in my high school class in Atlanta, and that's cute. And everybody, oh, he must have been funny. Well, I was funny, and I had a good personality, and so on. And that that's good, but it's bad because it allowed me to sort of skate through things that other people had to stop and really work on. Uh, I had money-wise, I had salesman's disease. You know, getting a financial jam, not a problem. I can sell my way out of anything and and have several times. I forget who it was, but the wife of some famous singer, maybe a member of the Beatles or somebody like that, anyway, said to him one day, uh, because he wrote songs, write us a swimming pool, honey. You know, if, oh. if, if you need money to do something, <laughs> You do what you do, and you're out of the problem. So I had a little bit of that going on. But he uh, he hit me several times early with stuff that sort of made my head come up and go, oh, he's not playing around. He actually knows what he's doing. And he wasn't a showboat. He didn't come in, you know, with a band playing behind him. And, and then I said, and then I said, and. Uh, so on. In fact, one time I, he probably did, and I didn't catch it. But one time he quoted directly from one of his books. It was from Thinking Grow Rich. We were having our first lunch together, and I guess he was sort of like I was. You know, we were paying him a lot of money. The company had paid him fifty thousand dollars for the first year to be my friend, and then I had to pay from the second year on if I wanted to go on, which I did. But. Uh, Perhaps trying to earn his credentials with me, he said, for some reason, you know, Ben, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. And he was putting a piece of salad in his mouth. As the fork neared his mouth, I said, unless he's crazy. 
and his hand stopped midway and he put his fork down. I thought, oh, he's not used to being challenged. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, the insane asylums are filled with people who sincerely believe that they are Napoleon or Jesus Christ or what have you. And the people out here on the streets have the same disease. We have people throughout our company who are going to be millionaires by Saturday part-time without working. And they they believe that. They could pass a lie detector test. So I, I, I think maybe that saying should be whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve, space-space, unless he's crazy. And he laughed, and he said, you know, if I ever rewrite the book, I think I'm going to put that in. Uh, oh. So that was one of the few times that he went to his scripts, you know, I wrote a book, and here's what the book says. The rest of the time, he was my grandfather or great-grandfather, probably watching with some amusement as I came into my own, as I picked up speed and so on. In fact, I know for a fact Merle Fraser, another mentor of mine, is, uh, I think 10 or 15 years older than I am, um, was staying at the Tiburon Lodge where we used to house people. Dr. Hill eventually moved up to my house whenever he was in town, but he was at the Tiburon Lodge. And Merle Frazier told me not too long ago, I mean, and within the last year or two, he said Dr. Hill, who was staying at the Tiburon Lodge, so they were socializing after hours, uh, he said, Dr. Hill really loved you. And I said, well, thank you. He said he thought you were so cute. <laughs> Then he raised you. Of... <laughs> I mean, he practically raised you. He he can say that you're cute. Grandpas do that. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't exactly the image I thought I was portraying and projecting. <laughs> but but uh, he was probably right. You know, you're 84 and you're watching a 25 year old who's full of himself with his first new cars and the big house and. And everybody's saying, Mr. Gay, how are you, Mr. Gay? It's so good to see you. Oh, you're right. Which led him, by the way, one day we were, I remember where we were standing, I don't know why, but we were standing in my secretary's office, and some of the yes men had just finished talking to us and walking away, and I love them dearly. Two of them are still my good friends to this day, but it was one of those, oh, yes, men, that's just wonderful. Yes, yes, let's do that. And when they walked away, Dr. Hill said, Ben, it's important that you always have several people, hopefully, but at least one who will tell you the absolute blanking truth. And and he used the word, only time I ever heard him use a word like that before or since, that somebody has to be there to tell you the absolute blanking truth. And that was one of those hammer blows to the head because I was really enjoying hearing what a wonderful person I was and how great my ideas were. There used to be a book, there still is a book somewhere, called Up the Organization by Robert Townsend. He was a big deal in the auto business. And somewhere in the book he says the most valuable employee team member he ever had was the guy who, when he announced uh, – whatever his next great idea was, uh, that uh, he would get a note from this guy. And it was, you know, my dear leader, before I sally forth on this, your latest great idea, it falls to me 
to tell you that you're full of blank. <laughs> and he said we that do need those people. Yeah. He said the most valuable team member he ever worked with, he would say, without being asked, it wasn't an agreement. I've had people that I've said, here's your job. You know, when I'm out of the line or I go too far in a talk or a seminar or what have you, your job is to tell me. Cabot Robert, the, the uh, uh, father of the modern professional speaking industry, one of the three NASA. founders. Right. If you win NASA. that Cabot Award, you've you've won something great. Yeah. Uh, Cabot, uh, by the way, I was one of the three members of the, of the start. Wade Cannon, who I mentioned earlier in this conversation, and Cabot Robert were in a hotel bar somewhere, having obviously had a drink or two, and they called me. From the, with the bartender's phone from you know, this is before cell phones with the bartender's phone from behind the counter and uh, said we're starting this new deal and we want you to join so I became the third member of the National Speakers Association Wade and I and all of the charter members that followed us had to put in $50 which would be 500 or so today and uh, but Cabot didn't have to put anything in because he was going to donate his legal time to set up NSA, which he, which he did. But anyway, Cabot said to me one day, we were doing a session somewhere with a bunch of people. Uh, he was starting to get up in years, and, and he was still, there was nothing wrong, but, you know, there's a difference between somebody who's 84 and 24. 84 is wise, 24 is maybe a little more glib. And I think he'd repeated the story that day. So anyway, he said, Ben, I want you to promise me something. And I said, yeah. He said, when I no longer should be on stage, you tell me. He said, I'm, I'm putting that on you. Have you ever seen me? He said, I don't want to embarrass myself. And so it's your job to tell me, and I promised I would, but the situation never came up. Shortly after that, within a few years of that, he was speaking to the American Dental Association. I think it was, had a heart attack on stage and dropped you know, to the ground, to the stage and was hauled off in an ambulance. But they, he recovered, and they brought him back the next year. And as he walked on stage, took the microphone, he said, as I was saying, picked <laughs> up in his speech right where he'd left off. This was easy for him to do. Cabot used to laugh. He said, I've got one speech with ten titles. Which one do you want? You know, my very dear friend, Jim Tunney, Dean of NFL Referees, he won that award, and he was also the president at one point, I think either right before or right after um, Jeannie Robertson, who passed away recently. Yeah. Yeah. Nice group of people. Very. I'm I'm amazed. (coughs) Pardon me. I'm amazed how big it has gotten, and to some degree that's a problem. Uh, I've, been, I've worried sometimes that they're about to become Toastmasters, which is also a great program. But when we started NSA, we picked the, the 12 charter members and probably the next 50 or 60 that followed were all established, professional, successful speakers, not somebody who was looking forward to giving their first speech. So it was a little different, and, but the size has given them a, an influence that we didn't have in the, in the very beginning, and I'm very proud of what they've accomplished. I uh, 
somebody invited me or I was, oh, I was in a hotel somewhere, San Francisco, Sacramento, somewhere, and I saw there was an NSA chapter meeting. So I walked up to the door. I'm pretty good about party crashing. Uh, walked in, sat down the back row, and I was just listening out of curiosity. And the guy came over and said, are you a member? And uh, I said, well, I, I don't know how long my dues lasted, but uh, I think so, since I'm one of the first three. And he said, well, you're not Cabot. He said, I never met Wade Cannon, but you must be Ben Gay. I thought, ah. Somebody, somebody remembered. <laughs> it, saved me, it saved me from being thrown out, which I think was going to be the next sentence. You know, if you're not a member, you've got to go. Well, how was that meeting? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy any meeting. You meet people and so on. I really don't recall right. what they were doing. A couple of presentations and so on. I've given, uh, Denise, as you may recall, I've given 5,000 paid appearances, speeches, seminars, and so on. Probably that many more free uh, with my two uh, prison programs, uh, there's another thousand free right there, uh, and uh, to churches and so on. So it it's been a while since uh, I've been so dazzled. Was, you know, it, it, they're no longer my first seminars, if you know what I mean. I used to be able to walk into any meeting with a legal pad and fill it up before uh, the session was over. Uh, I've sort of been there, done that. But occasionally, I listen intently because occasionally uh, something popular. I was at a Bruce Norris seminar. He's a big deal in the real estate business. And uh, he got up on stage, and I, I was a speaker. I think I'd already been on uh, the day before. But he got up and he did a thing where he put out a tape measure across the stage, and that was... 90, it represented 90 years or 100 years or something. And he started pacing it off. He said, what you've got to look at is based on the actuarial tables, where are you in the process to make sure you're using your time properly. And by the time he got paced down to my age versus the actuarial expectancy of people like me, uh, that day, and this was years ago, I had used up 86% of my expected life. I'm, I'm playing on house money now. I'm happy to report, but I <laughs> used up 86%. And I thought, that's good. And I wrote that down, and it literally made a major correction in my life. Little things, like there's some people we used to meet with a couple times a month socially, and I really didn't enjoy it, and I didn't like them, but Gigi had a connection with somebody or whatever. So the time came to accept or not the next Friday event, and I said, no, I'm not going. And, and therefore, Gigi wasn't either. We sort of sewn together at the hip. And she said, why not? I said, well, Bruce Norris told me I'd used up 86% of my Fridays. So with only 14% of my Fridays left, that's not how I choose to spend it. And that spilled over into several areas of my life. I've always been good about saying no to things, but I wasn't good enough. I now know that no, N-O, is a complete sentence. 
and you can do it with a smile. I mean, throw on a few word paddings if you want to simplify it, but no means no. And uh, I don't know what the percentage is now. I'm almost afraid to look, but 86% of my life was gone, and therefore that's not how I'm going to spend Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or with this person. It just freed me up and and gave it a, a, a mathematical a numerical value for which I appreciate it. And now that I'm talking about it, I'm thinking I ought to check. I mean, that'd be down to zero now. No, not today. No, no, no. You're good. You're still here. No, no, no. You're going to live forever, man. I command it. All right. I accept your command. Okay. But listen, I agree with you. The word no is apparently... My first, my mom said, excuse me, my mom insisted that my very first word was not mama or daddy or dog or cat. It was no, with exclamation points, apparently. She said I was very sincere when I would say no. And I don't bother, you know, prettying it up. If I tell you no, I mean no. And if you ask me a second time and it's still no, I will flat tell you, I've said it twice. There will not be a third one. And they, oh, okay. And they back off. No is no. <laughs> there was a counselor at San Quentin who, behind her desk, uh, was a pretty big sign, like six feet long and two feet tall, professionally printed. And it said, what part of no don't you understand? Cause all it's a good word. Yeah, inmates were coming in, you know, asking for this or that and so on, and the answer to almost all the requests is no. If if it were okay, we'd already be doing it. Uh, Prison has its uh, upsides and downsides. But uh, she got so tired of saying that she put up the sign. What part of no don't you understand? And if you ask her questions like that, I was never in one of her sessions, but if you ask her questions like that, I'm told she would just point over her shoulder without even looking, point over her shoulder at the sign. And that meant this discussion is over. I like her style. Listen, I wanted to go back a little bit because you were talking about, you know, being polite and Southern polite and, you know, how you didn't know your teacher's first names. Some time ago, it wasn't all that long ago, we, we were chatting and you told me a story about your favorite teacher. And it was a bit heartbreaking, I have to say. Can you share that story with our audience? Because I think it's important. My English teacher? Yes. Yeah, uh, I, wa- I got thrown out of high school, uh, thrown out. I wasn't handcuffed and led to the door, but they told my family that I wasn't really playing well with others at, in high school. So I left Murphy High School and went to a private school, St. Andrews. I would have gone to reform school, but my father had money, so he got me into a prep school. And after about a year and a half, I got thrown out of there and in Georgia, you had to be in school somewhere till you graduated, 17, 18, whatever it was. So Murphy High School had to take me back. I was I got confused about what room I was supposed to be in, uh, and I went skidding into my English class about five minutes late. Made one of those, uh, that guy on uh, Seinfeld who skids into the room, uh, Crane or whatever his name is kids into the room every time he comes in. That was sort of my entrance to English class. And being the wittiest, of course, 
Everyone looked up, assumed I was trying to be funny, and laughed. I was just late. I went to the wrong room. I hadn't been in the school in a year and a half or two years. And Ms. Griffin, I later found out her first name was Edith, although I never said it to her, but I did find it out. Uh, Ms. Griffin looked up when she heard the laughter and saw me in the door, and she said, Mr. Gay, I presume. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, she's been warned, because I'd never met her. She didn't know me. And uh, she got up from her desk, turned one of the student desks around, one of those self-contained units, put it beside her desk, facing the classroom. And she said, you will sit here this year. And I did. And she said, now let me give you a couple of news flashes. One, you're going to win the state writing championship. She didn't know that, I mean, I I could write like anybody else that age, but I was not a, a poet or an author to say the least. You'll win the state writing championship and you will speak at graduation. And uh, I'm thinking valedictorian, salutatorian. This poor woman is out of her mind. There's not a remote chance I'm going to be either one of those. But what I didn't know was she controlled who gave the prayer. So as the year went on, I was instructed to write the graduation prayer, memorize it, practice it in the cafeteria, working with a microphone, et cetera. And one night at the Atlanta Municipal Auditorium on cue, I walked down front, stood behind the microphone, did the hand gestures, you know, please stand up, and 3,000 people stood up. And I thought, oh, I like this. <laughs> so without knowing it, she turned me into a professional speaker. It took a while, but that was my start when 3,000 people stood up at my command and then listened intently while I recited the prayer I had memorized. And I won the state writing championship. So, one much to many people's surprise, uh, one time a few years later, we're back in Atlanta with my running buddy, Jimmy Rucker, and we were driving around and so on. And uh, we dropped in at the, at the high school, and the area had changed, and the high school had changed. But we walked in the door, and a lady, I was thinking, I must have been in here a lot of times being in trouble. Because she said, Ben Gay, how are you? And I said, oh, my God. You'd think there'd be a statute of limitations on bad behavior. <laughs> there isn't, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess not. So she started telling me about teachers who remembered me and had talked about me and, and so on. And among them was Ms. Griffin. And she said she's retired, but here's her phone number. She would really love it if you gave her a call. And Mr. Evans, who made me fall in love with history, was still teaching there all those years later. So I went down and saw him. But that night, I called Ms. Griffin and told her how my life had changed thanks to her. <clears throat> She'll stop telling me this. I didn't think you'd get me that way. I know. Uh, how my life, talk- my, I, you know, I have to tell you, when changed. you told me this the first time, I cried. So I get it. Well, she... I called her at home, and uh, I said, you probably don't remember me, but um, this is Ben Gay. She said, remember you? Of course I remember you, and started telling me things that uh, she remembered about me and our interactions and and, uh, how funny she thought I was. But she said, but I made you perform. I said, you you sure did. 
So at the end of the call, I said, Miss Griffin, I'm really sorry to bother you uh, because uh, I know people, you know, must bug you all the time with this thank you calls and so on. She said, Ben, I taught in the Atlanta school system for I think it was 40 years, and you're the first person who has ever called to thank me. I thought that was just heartbreaking. I know. Yeah, she changed, literally changed people's lives for 35, 40 years. And I mean, radical changes in behavior and talent and goal setting and so on. And no one had called. And when I talked to a few other people, I sort of got in a little circle of old graduates for a while. And uh, when I told them the story, they said, oh, no, other people must have called her. I said, did you? No. Do you know anybody that did? <laughs> no. Well, she wasn't kidding. Nobody had called. So, it, again, that's one of those life-changing things for me. When somebody does something nice for me, they probably almost wish they hadn't because I thank them every time I see them from that point forward. You know, you and I, I, I'm wiping my tears, honestly. Oh, thank you for sharing that. You and I have talked about what I call God winks. You've had a crap ton of them, excuse the language, starting from, and it's not starting there, but what we've been talking about today was when when you started with that organization and you got the very first thing that you were given, two things that altered your course, no question, you know, the record and the book. And, I mean, they keep coming. It's like almost you're charmed. But while I'm saying that, I'm also recognizing that you understand them and you recognize them. And as Napoleon Hill told you, you take action. So people aren't just tossing things at you and you say, oh, hey, great, thanks, and then keep on moving on. You're actually paying attention, and I think that's why your life is so incredibly blessed and how you are able to bless other people with the things that you've learned from your mentors and your teachers, your educators, from people that you're listening to every day. I mean, you've put out some amazing, amazing content. Look, I jump into Facebook and the first person I go look for, by the way, you need to post a little bit earlier in the day because I'm always looking and you're not there. So I wanted to tell you that. Like, <laughs> can you? Well, that's okay. Can you? But I was going to say, can you wake up earlier just because I know I'm a couple hours ahead of you, but still. So there you go. But I honestly go look for you every single day, every single day without fail. Thank you very much. That will inspire me to probably not do more. I don't want to be a pest, but to, to do it earlier and, and to realize somebody, somebody might actually be reading it. It's amazing. Oh, we're reading it. Through life and, and in this business, the human potential, human personal development business, it's really interesting uh, how many lives you touch. And sometimes you know it. It's obvious there's a moment, you know, that. 15,000 people in Norway stand and cheer, and I don't remember what the point was, but something was extremely pertinent to that company, that time, et cetera, and I could see, you know, people, tears running down their cheek and so on, but there are other times you just don't know about. We went to a little uh, restaurant bar here in Placerville uh, probably a couple of years ago now, and the bartender I had on my Ben Gay shirt. 
And the bartender said, are you the Ben Gay? I said, well, I'm not the ointment Ben Gay. I'm Ben Gay to speak to. He said, are you Ben yeah. Are you Ben Gay who used to go to and he named a restaurant no longer in business? I said, oh, yeah, on a regular basis. He said, you're a legend in our house. I said, why? He said, well, my mother was waiting on you one day in the Lillian Russell room of Sam's Town. And as she put her, the plate down, as the story goes, you noticed that her fingernails were bitten to the quick. And I'm paraphrasing now. I'm paraphrasing what he said, and he was probably paraphrasing what I said. But anyway, the gist of it was, what is a lovely lady like you, because I remember she was beautiful, doing with your fingernails in that condition? And, uh, well, I don't know, and I get nervous and so on and so on. I said, well, let let me help you. And I gave her $100. I held out a $100 bill, and I said, this is yours. I'll put it in a special place in my wallet. And, and again, it's a lot of the stories are older. It's like a thousand dollars today. And when the next time I'm in here, that you can show me your fingernails are out to your fingertips, you get the hundred dollars. And he said, uh, in a month or so, she was ready and she came over to the table and showed you the fingers and you gave her a hundred dollars. And he, he said, <clears throat> it changed her confidence level. It changed who she married, my father. <laughs> you know, and all it was to me was just I used to bite my fingernails when I was a kid, and they put that stuff on it that made them taste, made them taste terrible. Uh, and and I felt better about myself when it was done. So I, I'm aware of, especially younger people with bitten fingernails. It literally changed her life. It was a casual comment, probably beginning to end. Both encounters didn't take five minutes. Uh, and uh, it, impact. And I think I've told you about the young man who called me one day and said he wanted to run a couple ideas by me or something. He was over in San Francisco. I was living in Marin County. He came over the Golden Gate Bridge to see me. Fast forward three or four years, he's sitting with one of my business partners having lunch. My name came up, and he dropped his head. He said, did you say Ben Gay? And Sam said, yeah. He dropped his head and started crying. And Sam was telling me, he said, I thought, my God, what did Ben do to him? And what, <laughs> who am I in business with? Well, it turned out when he called to ask if he could meet with me, uh, and I'm a sucker for stuff like that, I said, of course. He wrote, he had written his suicide note, folded up some belongings. They always seem to do that. That's sort of like a farewell package. I used to serve under the Golden Gate Bridge in the Coast Guard, and I picked up 14 jumpers. Most left notes. All of them left clothing or something folded in their car or whatever. So he folded up his clothes, wrote the suicide note, and he said, I went over to see Ben and the theory was if he could save me or help me or give me hope, I would come back and go to work. And he said, if not, I would come back, stop mid-span on the Golden Gate Bridge and jump. And uh, he said, I'm happy to report I'm here. My belongings are here. And I tore up the suicide note. Thanks to Ben Gay. I didn't do anything miraculous, Denise. I was just talking to somebody like I would but the point is, I didn't understand the significance who, of who I was talking to. 
So when I meet somebody now in the most casual circumstances, I'm thinking this person could be right at the raggedy edge. What could I do to make their life a little brighter, a little more positive right now? And I rarely, it has to be a two-second encounter, I rarely meet anyone that I don't find something to compliment them about. It's almost a game. And Gigi, who's a sweet person to start with, has gotten in on the game over the years. And she said, it's like magic. We, we get better service. We have better friends. We have people who are happy to see us, <laughs> which for me was a change. Uh, so it, it, I, 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 <laughs> I really encourage it, and I encourage it on a selfish basis. You know, people say, I give without any expectation of reward. Well, then you don't understand the rules. I don't give to get the reward, but I give knowing I will get the reward from them or somebody they told or somebody who was watching it or the general aura that I try to project, whatever. It always comes back, always. And knowing that, why wouldn't you be nice and kind and caring and empathetic to people as you go through life? Absolutely. Listen, I am an introvert. I knew it when I was a young, young child. I embrace it. It's who I am. I can be around people for you know, 59 and three-quarter minutes, but that's about it. That's my limit. I must go home now. <laughs> but, but you never know. I mean, I live in the South. You know what the South is like. You cannot go to the Walmart without somebody. Uh, nobody's a stranger here. And people will turn around to talk to me. They'll, and I'm in there in my baseball cap, my Ray-Bans. I am invisible. No, I'm not. I think I am. I go outside intending to be invisible, but I'm not. And I remember years ago, I was in the Albertsons, and there was this beautiful older lady. She reminded me so much of my mom. And she was dressed beautifully. She had on her little coordinated um, capri pants and a really cute little top, and she had on jeweled sandals. She was probably in her 80s, and I thought she was lovely. And me, not having any filters, I looked at her and I said, I love your shoes. We both finished checking out. We got off to the side. We had to push our buggies out of the way so we wouldn't block the place. And we talked for probably an hour. I've never seen her before or since, but I've never forgotten her. And she lit up. It's like she probably thought that I, you know, I always think I'm invisible. She was probably thinking the same thing. Well, she wasn't. She was lovely. Yeah. That's it. And you make somewhere, uh, she's still with us somewhere today, uh, or within the last week, she has told people about that encounter and what it meant to you. Similar story, beautiful little lady, turned out she was almost 90 in a pink sweat uh, shirt, and I think white pants or something. But anyway, she was just, her hair was perfect and it was snow white and so on. And so I, I said, pardon me, ma'am. I said, this is my wife. I want you to know I'm not hitting on you, but you're absolutely gorgeous. I hope someone's told you that today. And as she turned around, big smile, made her day, like what you're talking about. On the front of her T-shirt, it said, admit nothing, deny everything, attack with false accusations. I love her. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm going to grow up to be her. 
Yeah, I thought I found you attractive to start with. Now I love you. <laughs> and, and you know, honestly, especially these days, and you and I have talked about this, how people are just so upset and angry and motivated to be nasty for some reason and they need to listen to these stories that you're sharing with me about how to be kind you know it does and be deliberately kind it makes a huge difference on how you perceive the rest of your day how somebody else perceives your day and you're right things come from that I mean I always get nobody ever gets in my way or tries to run over me with their buggy or their car people seem to like me for some darn reason but I go in there assuming that I'm going to get in, get my stuff, get out, and I'm always wrong, and I'm always happy to be wrong. And I get to meet really neat people. So, yeah, Yeah. you know, show your kindness chops every day. I've been asked, you know, you must be local, and I am local. I've been here 46 years, but I married into the Ronzoni family. I've been here for 100, so I'm described. I don't have any local clients don't give speeches within 50 miles of home that we set up some boundaries so we can have a, a life and I can dress casual and so on. So in this town, I'm known as Gigi Ronzoni's husband and we don't know what he does. <laughs> but I was asked one time, when you, do you ever feel lonely? Because Gigi knows everyone in town. They all know her. You go into a store, you're Gigi, Gigi. And I said, no, I have as many friends as she has. Hers are 70 years of duration, and mine are usually four or five minutes. But I go in looking to make friends. So we we eat out quite a bit, and I'm forever telling people, we have food and wine at home. That's not why we come out. We come out to be around other people and have a social experience. And we go out to have a good time. I don't go out to spend $100 or whatever and have a bad time. Therefore, we always have a good time. We have a good time when the food is marginal. We have a good time when the service is not up to par. That only happens once per visit because uh, I convert them. But we, we have a good time. The service now, because people can't get me to wait on you, the, uh, the service is slow. We laugh about that and have a good time talking about that. Uh, We go out deliberately to meet people, give them compliments, love them, and have a good time, and we always do, always. Why wouldn't you want to live that way? Oh, I agree. You know what I wanted to ask, and we've run a little bit long. Do you mind staying with me just a little bit longer? I mean, we're not streaming any longer, but we're still recording. Oh, see, that's all I need to hear. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, and we have a, a, believe it or not, we have a lot of very young people who listen to this podcast. It's heard all over the world, which I, I'm amazed by and delighted by, but we have a young, young demographic who are business-minded. So what would you tell a younger Ben Gay or our young audience, what would you tell them that you would have done differently? Give us your best advice. Uh, in, in my case, and I think it applies to most people, I would have gotten serious sooner. And here's what I mean by that, because when I say that, some people who know a little bit about my history say you were winning sales contests when you were 10. 
you owned your own lawn mowing business with 20, 25 employees when you were 14. You were the youngest buyer in Macy's history at 18, Davison's in Atlanta was what it was called. And, uh, uh, and then you were, were heading up a company at 25. What do you mean you get serious sooner? I said, through all of that, I was laughing, giggling, drinking too much beer, and chasing girls. That's, you know, I, I performed as I should have and earned the promotions and the money and so on as I should have. But I can easily say I could have made twice as much progress and twice as much money if I had realized this is a, a long journey and it's a serious journey and selling is a profession. It's not something you do for laughs during the day. So if I still had about my office, my all, all four walls of my office used to be covered frame to frame to frame to frame with plaques and awards and so on and, and trophies sitting on the floor. They all went to the dump about 20 years ago. Oh. But, uh, yeah, oh, you just broke my heart. It was a we could have had the Ben Gay Museum. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. My wife feared that. Uh, the uh, in fact, I was when we were talking about speaking the National Speakers Association. I among the plaques that went to the dump was charter member of the National Speakers Association. Oh. Didn't mean it didn't mean I did anything other than I answered the phone and there were Wade and Cabot. Uh, semi-drunk. So it, it wasn't a great achievement, but I got a plaque even for that. But I would have gotten serious sooner, and I mean about life in general. I don't mean don't have a good time. I have a good time when I'm working. But I, I, I would have gotten at it, not not at 9 instead of 10 or 13 instead of 14. Just be serious about the thing, and I could have done a whole lot more good if i fully realized what I was really doing, which, which wasn't just selling and making money. What I was really doing was passing on what my father and, and mother, but my father and his friends at East Lake Country Club had taught me. I may have told you my, my one of my little honors in life was after a round of golf, even if I was just walking around with them, I got to go in the men's grill and sit with the gentleman. Only rule being be quiet. Listen, if you're asked a question, answer it directly with a yes or no, if at all possible, and go back to being quiet again. Well, that put me at the table with whoever was the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola at the time and the founders of Home Depot and the heads of every 500 top companies in America all had at least regional offices in Atlanta, and many of their executives belonged to East Lake Country Club. That's where everybody belonged. And uh, so on. So I learned the value of listening and watching and absorbing what they were talking about. I didn't know people had cars other than Mercedes and Cadillacs and Lincolns uh, unless I went off the grounds of of the club. That's all that was there. So that became my comfort zone got set high. Jim Newman, who coined the term comfort zone, became a friend later in life, and he had not yet coined it. But that's really what was happening. I was setting my comfort zone without realizing it. So it, when I started encountering how life was without money and power and influence, when I left my father's little 
umbrella of protection. I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't how Ben Gay lives. Uh, and that's the reason I picked up the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on September 15th, Wednesday, and went looking for a better job, a better situation. Couldn't find a job I was qualified to do and flipped into business opportunities. I didn't know what one was, but it looked intriguing. And the first ad I read said, if you know anything about marketing plans, want to make more money, dial this number. I didn't know what a marketing plan was, but I was looking in the paper because I wanted to make more money. And people said, well, what if you hadn't seen that ad? It only ran one day, and I saw it. And Zig Ziglar saw it, independent of me. That's how I met Zig. We both answered the same ad. But he said, what, what would have happened if you hadn't picked up that paper that day? And I said, well, I'd picked up another paper on another day. My comfort zone was set. Maybe I wouldn't have wound up in that company with those people. But because my comfort zone was set, I was going to make something in my life somehow, some way. And while we're talking about that comfort zone and all, I'm holding in my hand. I picked up a book, Don't Let Your Past Hold You Back, The Redemption of a Gangster by M. Lamont Bowens. That's M. your Lamont stepson Bowens. It, or your, your adopted son, yes? Yeah, our, our adopted son. He was a 19-year-old drug dealer when I met him in federal prison. He came to my public speaking class. And I won't go through it, but we put, I put my arm around him and said, I see something special in you. This, his goal was to get out of prison, finish his five-year term, stick up somebody, get three or $400 to finance his way back into the drug business. He'd been in a gunfight with his stepfather. So when, when he said, well, you know, I, I was a little slow. I didn't take off like you took off. I said, you weren't raised at East Lake Country Club with the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola. Your, your heroes drove uh, Cadillacs with those stretch hoods on them, white fur coats, big floppy hats, carried guns, and had were flashing $100 bills all over the place. That was your comfort zone. we got to break that. But it doesn't make you a bad person. So to your listeners... I don't care what the situation is. It's easier for some, harder for others, but it's all changeable. I've spent 11 and a half years working in around, of my adult life working in and around prisons. I've heard stories that would curl your hair, uh, but many of those stories turn their lives around once they figured out how the game was played, what the rules of the game were. I've had uh, a lot of black people in the classes over the years, and they said, well, you know, uh, the white man doesn't uh, like us. And I said, no, it's worse than that. The white man doesn't think about you. And when he does, it's negative because of the stereotype. Your job is to break through that, and here's the good news. When you break through that, you'll get more credit than you deserve because they expected you to be uneducated, lazy, a gangster, or this, or that, and whatever. And when you show up on time and have something to offer to the game, you'll get far more credit than I would get. And I, I, we know you don't like uh, white guys. I know there's some generalization, but that was sometimes in the early days of any of my classes, the subject matter. Understand, you have to learn to get along with them, because the white folks men and women, and women control the majority of, the, of, of that money, the white folks have the money. 
So you can stand over on the side yelling and screaming how you don't like them, but the smart people will figure out how to deal with them, how to impress them, how to move up through the ranks. Lamont, we were just discussing, was a high school dropout, assuming he ever dropped in. I don't know that for a fact. Uh, but I helped get in his GED, working with him at the before and after class whenever I could. Uh, got in his GED, then he got out, called and asked if I would guarantee a college loan. He said, I promise you will never have to pay a dime. I never have. And we guaranteed his college loan. And then a few years later, he called and asked for another guarantee. I said, what this time? <laughs> he wanted to go to law school. And I'm guessing a couple of years ago now, he called and he said, Dad, because in the meantime, Jesus and I have adopted him. Uh, he's probably the oldest adoptee on the planet. He was in his mid-20s when we officially did it. I said, I, Dad, I need another letter of recommendation. I said, how much is this one going to cost me? First, it didn't cost anything, but I like to kid him about it. And he said, oh, this isn't, this, this isn't a loan guarantee. This is just a letter of recommendation. I'm up for a federal judgeship in a new youth court they want to set up. So we've gone from Lamont, the gangster, to about to be Judge Bowens. When people say, but you don't understand my situation. I said, your situation is nothing. You want to hear some stories about bad situations? My God. It really and is Dr. up Hill to us. Like to believe whatever the, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. So if you're not crazy and believe that you have these goals, go for them. Make them I am's. Claim them. Don't work and hope they'll work out. Claim them. I had my business cards that said Ben Gay the third, president of Holly Magic uh, Cosmetics, printed a year before I was president. So when William Penn Patrick announced it to a big gathering in New York, and they all stood and cheered. I reached in my pocket and held him a card, handed him a card. It was already done, printed gold seal and everything. And he laughed, and I said, Bill, it works. And I pointed at the blackboard. I just given my I am talk. I said, I am president of this company a long time ago. See, I find that. I want to say astonishing, but I would be lying. It's not astonishing. We are in charge of how we think, what we're going to do for the most part. We are in charge of my I am statement. And I love the message. I've been reading and listening a lot. I mean, of course, I read, you know, Dr. Hill. I've got your book, The Closers, part one on my desk. It's got a permanent spot underneath one of my cats at the moment, but it has a permanent <laughs> spot on my desk. My cat, he's 20 pounds and he's a hashtag, hashtag Hamilton is an ass. He loves your book, but I'm not sure he can read it, but he likes it. <laughs> he finds a lot of comfort sitting on it. But the thing is, we... We cannot be somebody else. We have to be I am. Am I going to be crabby today? Am I going to have a headache today? No. You you know, those thoughts may pass your head, but you go, no, I'm not going to do that. So then you stop, breathe, and say, I am. And then you choose a different path. And it's instantaneous. I woke up this morning with a tiny bit of a headache, which I refuse to have. So I got up, I took a deep breath, I you know, did a few little stretching exercises and said, I do not have a headache. And guess what? Well, I, I said, what I do need is a glass of water. And that cured the headache. That was over. 
and then I moved on to the next thing. Yes, I, uh, it's how you just it's how you decide how you design your life, and a lot of this sounds yes. clicheish, but I hope that someone who's listening maybe this time gets it. The saying in the Bible, the teacher will appear when the student is ready. Everyone listening to this has heard variations of everything we've said today. Somewhere, somehow, maybe today, the student is ready and will take action. Because Very definitely. Because the always been there. See, and that's an important word you just used, the opportunity. It's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day minutiae or flotsam and jetsam or whatever is going on in your day and get to bed that night and go, oh, geez, what did I do? Well, not a whole heck of a lot. Well, that's going to change. (laughs) So you have to be aware. You have to be aware. You have to pay attention to those God winks, those moments that come your way. Even if you don't catch them that day, always remember them because in your life, I mean, you've had these amazing, amazing opportunities that you were smart enough to take advantage of. Well, I was lucky, Denise, in that, you know, luck does play a factor. Uh, but you have to take, a lot of people have lucky experiences and don't take advantage of them, so it's like they didn't happen. I was uh, astute enough to take advantage of my luck. But by becoming president of Holiday Magic Cosmetics, which at the time you were in selling, you were plotting and scheming how to get into and be an influence in that company or one like it. And if you wanted to be a speaker, you spent your life from the time you woke up in the morning to you went to bed at night trying to figure out how to get me to hire you to appear in one of our big seminars or regional seminar or what have you. Therefore, it put me in the catbird seat. Here came Zig Ziglar, Og Manzino, Earl Nightingale, Dr. Napoleon Hill, uh, uh, Fred Herman, an underrated but great sales trainer from Cedartown, Georgia. And uh, it said I have a sheet that goes out to a new podcast host. You know, you might want to ask about these people. Charlie Manson is on that list. Yeah. By the way, anybody right? Anybody who's listening, go back and find the uh, the other two podcasts that we did because you did talk about Charlie Manson, and they're worth listening to. One was in 2016, the other one was in 2017. We're not going to go this long in between podcasts anymore, Ben, but they're fascinating. So go find those. Well, the, the the trick is when those people started coming at me. It was like a second coming. I thought, oh, I've been here before. I sat in the men's grill with my father at the table with the movers and shakers of corporate America and the big deals of the southeastern United States. So I I know what to do with this opportunity. So when the... Jay Douglas said words and and the people... Ronald Reagan came to our office... Richard Nixon came to our office. Bill Patrick had run for governor of California against Ronald Reagan. Uh, Rather than be all tongue-tied and unable to act, I'd met people more successful than any of them before, but I learned that each person that I meet has something to teach me, and hopefully I have something to give them. It'll be a reasonably fair exchange. So when they started coming, 
I didn't have to be lucky. I didn't have to be terribly astute. I'd been there before. I knew I knew how this game worked, and I knew that those people were valuable uh, personally, financially, etc. And you don't have to wait till you're president of a big company uh, if you're listening to this show to do this. I have exactly the same feeling when I walk into a restaurant or a social gathering or a club meeting. I don't go to many club meetings, but I get invited to some from time to time, and I go, and uh, I'm, I'm looking around. I know where the interesting people are. Sally Stanford, the madam of San Francisco, who was later mayor of Sausalito, owned a wonderful restaurant there, became a dear friend of mine. I read about the madam of San Francisco and what a character she was, so I made dinner reservations and said, before I leave Valhalla, Sally Stanford and I will be friends. And we were the best of friends till the day she died. Because I walked in and said, hi, you don't know me, but. And I learned so much from her. Quick story you might enjoy. Sally Stanford and I are sitting in Valhalla at the end of the bar. My wife got up and to go to the van. I say my wife instead of Gigi because it was my first wife, Marsha, who's passed away. Uh, Marsha got up to go to the bathroom. This lady comes over and says, Miss Stanford, and keep in mind, Sally was the madam of San Francisco. The United Nations was formed in her parlor in her house of prostitution after hours when they came for drinks and cigars and so on. That's where it was That makes sense, considering who they are. That does make sense. Yeah. So when you meet somebody like Sally, you're meeting a whole lot of other people that you've only read about in history books and so on. But anyway, this lady came over and she said, Miss Stanford, um, I'm married to Dr. So-and-so, and and he says he's your good friend and and so on. And Sally said, I'm really sorry. I I don't remember the name. I don't think I I know him. Oh, well, he's, you know, bald head, blah, blah, blah. Sally says, I'm really sorry. I, I don't know him. She finally gave up and went away. And I said to Sally, Sally, that lady's husband obviously knew you and was bragging about it to his wife. And she said, in the business I've been in, Ben, you learn to be discreet. If Marsha comes out of the bathroom right now and asks me if I know Ben Gay, my answer will be, never heard of him. So. One one of the lessons I learned, I learned many from her, but one of the lessons I learned from Sally Stanford was to be discreet, and you don't have to say everything you know to everybody. You just be you. And she was a regal character sitting at the corner of her bar where she could watch the restaurant, the entrance, and both sides of the bar all from one spot, dripping with jewelry. But she's one of those people, if I didn't know she'd owned the restaurant, I would have walked in, spotted her, and gone over anyway. Hi, I'm Ben Gay. Who are you? (laughs) And see, you're always looking for those people, and they're looking for you, which I find fascinating. And it goes back to what you said earlier about that aura that you, you present. Because people, listen, we can tell people, most people can look around and spot who the dogs are in the room, the bad people, and they can find out almost instantly who they want to get to know or chat with or just say hi to. You know, follow your instinct. It sounds like you do that a lot. Yeah, and it's, a you know, you're born with a little personality or not, raised by the right people or not. 
but it's a learned skill. I didn't have it when I started out, Denise. The, the, the friends of my father's were thrust upon me. I didn't go looking for them. But when I found the value of knowing them, I started going to look for them. I found that I could literally, this is going to sound a, a little odd, maybe hard to explain over the radio, but uh, I found out that I could walk through a hotel lobby unnoticed by anybody, invisible, or I could walk through the same hotel lobby with the same crowd, draw a crowd, and be signing autographs. It's just when I turn on the Ben Gay sign, it's like uh, Cher was with a friend of mine one time and said they were having a talk up in a room or something, and she said, well, I'm sorry, I've got to go be Cher now. Uh-huh. Roy Rogers, it, it, but she understood it. It's like Cary Grant with Archibald uh, Leach. And, right. Uh, some guy, somebody said to him one day, I'd give anything in the world to be Cary Grant. And Cary Grant said, so would I. Because <laughs> he knew <laughs> Cary Grant was a costume he put on. A persona, right. Yeah. And Roy Rogers, my father, sold in his ranch in Apple Valley, California. He was my hero growing up. Uh, Roy Rogers, in an interview one day in this home in Apple Valley, uh, said when he still had the museum there, the Roy Rogers Museum, looked at his watch and said, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to go be old Roy now. And so he went from a baseball cap, tennis shoes, and his sort of boating outfit. What he really loved was to race uh, out, out, outboard speedboats. He said, I've got to go be old Roy now. Went down the hall to his bedroom, and he came back as Roy Rogers. Guns, hat, fancy shirt, everything. And he, the reporter, interviewer said he was a different man, an entirely different man. He was now old, what he called old Roy. Well, to the listeners, I'm not talking about faking it. I'm saying being aware of your situation being aware of what you have to offer. And my attitude, and it's going to sound egotistical, but it's not. My attitude when I walk into a room is, you lucky devils, I'm here. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I would be running over going, Ben, Ben, Ben. I would probably just embarrass the heck out of you, but you know, at least now you know. Really been uh, a pleasure in this business, in this profession, if you play it right, it is an absolutely magnificent profession. And that's true. You know, if someone's listening who's a dentist, everything we've said applies to dentists. I tend to gravitate towards putting on my salesman's hat, my speaker hat, my human potential development hat, and so on. But it fits in. I've never met anyone that couldn't benefit from this type of thinking. As I told you uh, the first time we talked, I think when I went in Charlie Manson's cell at San Quentin, he'd asked to meet me. He had one book in there, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I said, Charlie, it's sort of an unusual reading selection. It was his only book. He didn't have the Gideon Bible that sort of comes with the cell. Uh, he said, uh, it's, it, it is my Bible. I could not have built the Manson family without it. And my point in telling you that is not to glorify evil, which he was, uh, but to say that the techniques you and I have been discussing today work 
everywhere. It's like a gun. You can take a gun, protect your family and be a hero, or you can take a gun to a theater and shoot it up, shoot up the theater. The gun is the gun. It's an implement. It's a tool. There are rules and regulations for how it works. Same thing with human interactions. There's a game going on. It's easy to play. You just have to jump in the pool and watch what the winners are doing. When I first started in this business uh, with Zig, for instance, he was 18 years older and had been speaking in church and at cookware meetings and and so on. Uh, I hadn't been doing that. So I said to Zig, early in our relationship, he used to do biscuits, fleas, and pump handles, three stories, and the pump handles were uh, accentuated by an actual pump that he got off a farm somewhere before he got the fancy chrome one. This was a real <laughs> rusty pump, and it must have weighed 50 pounds. And oh, I, saw him lugging it in, I saw him lugging it into a meeting one day out of the car under the canopy at the hotel, and I said, Zig, you shouldn't be doing that. He said, well, I've got to have the pump in there. I said, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Elvis doesn't let us see him unloading the guitars out of the back of the car. That should be done by somebody else. I said, here's the deal. Whenever uh, you and I are in the same location, I will carry your pump in and set it up. You don't touch it. And then what I get for that is lunch and or dinner with you before and after the seminar and uh, front row seating at no charge at any seminar you're doing anywhere in the world. He said, deal. I carried that rusty old pump into probably 50 (laughs) different meetings at least, maybe more, including getting the rust on my only suit. Uh, But what what I was really doing was studying Zig. It was like wanting to be a comedian and going to a Don Rickles concert. I wanted to be a speaker, and there was Zig, one of the top speakers in the nation, if not the world, at the time, and I could hang out with him. And in less than two years, I was his boss. (laughs) And I know we're running way over. I don't care. I mean, you are so fascinating to talk to. Tell our audience very quickly, and they can go back and listen to the other two episodes, and I strongly recommend that anybody and everybody go listen to those. But how... Wasn't there a Rolls Royce involved in this story? How he won, you won, and he won, but he won second place. Yeah, the uh, first part they had a year-long sales contest, <clears throat> and I knew I was doing well. Jimmy Rucker and I were doing well, and Zig and his partner Melanias were doing well, but I didn't pay any real attention to it. My father raised me in in the sales business that you do your best every day, and if that wins you a television set, wonderful, and if it doesn't, so what? Uh, one day in a meeting, in the, a food brokerage meeting in New York, one of his clients said, Mr. Gay, and I was just sitting there, I was a kid, Mr. Gay, you do so much, uh, blah, 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 we will give you a color television console, and I showed him a picture, and of those big old cabinets had a record player on one end and so on. And I thought, well, that would be interesting if we just had a regular television set. And my father said, I'll clean it up. But the gist of it was you can put that television set where the sun doesn't shine. I get up every morning and sell all of your product that I possibly can to as many people as qualified to buy it. And if that wins a television set, 
send it to me. If it doesn't, I couldn't care less. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to see my father fired right in front of me. Well, three or four days later, when we got back to Atlanta from New York, guess what was on the front steps? A television set. Contest hadn't started. Didn't make any difference. Mr. Gay, you want a television set? You're going to do your best with us? Here it is. And I thought, oh, that's good. So with a year-long contest with Holiday Magic Cosmetics, I'm not stupid. I knew we were doing well. I certainly knew we were doing better than anybody in Atlanta by far. And uh, when the contest was over, the first prize was a mystery prize. Second prize was a Rolls Royce. Third prize was a Lincoln Continental. Then a Thunderbird, I believe. And then the steak knives and death sets, you know, oh. the, the, uh, the, the <laughs> knickknacks for the next 25 people. So I got the call. I had won the, the, mis- the mystery first prize, the mystery prize, and I was flown to California to uh, accept it, I guess. So I flew out and just met with Bill Patrick and discovered that the mystery prize was presidency of the company. And I said, why was it a mystery prize? He said, in case somebody won it that I didn't like, then I would change the prize. And I saw Very it. Very smart. Clever. Yeah. yeah. So Zig came in second. He won the Rolls Royce. And months later, whatever, I was talking to him on the phone one day, and I was having one of those days that, you know, the glamorous life of being the head of the company uh, that people don't, the part of it they don't see, <laughs> which is not glamorous, not fun, and a pain in the rear end. And Zig called, and I, he said, how's it going? I said, pretty good. But, Zig, I got a proposition for you. Keep in mind, he was 18 years older, had a little more experience. I said, here's my proposition. You bring the rolls out here with the keys, and I will greet you at the front door with the keys to the building. We'll just swap places. I'll go back to the field, and you'll be present. The company and Zig said, oh, no, you beat me <laughs> fair and square. <laughs> I have to ask, did he carry that rusty pump around in that Rolls Royce? I got to know. I think by then he was had moved up to the chrome one. In the end of his life, I've seen it in, in uh, videos and so on. It was shiner, shinier, smaller, and I suspect lighter. Maybe made out of uh, aluminum instead of cast iron. Wow! So he did not want your job. No, I think out of ego he did. Of course, when he was trying to get first prize. Uh, he didn't know what it was either. So, you know, maybe he thought it was a, a airplane or something. I don't know what he thought. But uh, once I had the prize and he had the roles, there was no swapping with him. He said, no, no. <laughs> you won it. You beat me fair and square. <laughs> At what point in, in this company did they bring in Napoleon Hill? And then I'll let you go. Did they bring in whom? Napoleon Hill. Uh, it, was 60, it was in my first year. I joined the company in 65, became president in 67, and sometime in 1967 was when uh, Bill Patrick brought Dr. Hill to my door and told me that uh, he'd be working with me that, uh, and that anything I told him would stop with Dr. Hill. He's a, he's a confidant, like a Catholic priest. And I didn't believe that, so I tested the theory a couple of times, and it was right. Nothing went past Dr. Hill. 
he ne- I'm not sure he and Bill Patrick ever had dinner after that moment. They, he was Dr. Hill belonged to me, and uh, oh. so that was. Uh, he did some things. He sat in board meetings because he was in my office, and the board meetings were in my office. But uh, basically, he was mine. Oh, let me that contest. Here, here's a lesson, a, a tangible lesson for your folks. On the last night of the contest, and again, I I didn't know I was in first place, so I, I assumed I was probably in the top five, but I didn't care. We were doing fine. Uh, anyway, when the dust settled and they counted up the money, uh, I on the last night of the contest, Zig believed he had won. And so he held a victory party in Columbia, South Carolina on the last night of the contest. I didn't know whether I'd won or not. I, I don't even think I knew it was the last night of the contest. We just had an opportunity meeting scheduled. And Jimmy Rucker and I held the meeting, and we did X amount of volume. I'll make up a number, $25,000 in volume. I don't know what we did, but whatever. The difference in first and second place was the dollar value of that meeting we held. And it wasn't even deliberate. It was just part of your daily calendar. Yeah. It was working my system. I was was just doing the system. I said, we'd do a meeting. I'll do a meeting. Showed up, did it. Didn't know we'd won until a day or two later. And, but when I found out the dollar amounts and got access to the books, the difference between Zig and his partner, Mel, and me and my partner, Jimmy, was what Jimmy and I sold in that last meeting while Zig was having this victory party in Columbia, South Carolina. Ouch. Did Zig ever know that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he whined about it for years. <laughs> but you guys are friends. Then so. <laughs> you have a fascinating life and a fascinating story and I love you dearly you know this and I'll say it on the radio I really do want you to come back again you know at some point this year because you have so much to share I mean you really do you have these fascinating stories you know stories that people simply aren't going to know about unless they hear them from you or from me or you know other podcasts that you've been on mm-hmm. and I really do want you to come back again soon you know that I'm a big fan of yours, Denise, so, and Gigi loves you, so if you tell me to do something, Gigi will make me do it, whether I want to oh. do or not. All right, Gigi. <laughs> so Love her, your too. Wish is my com- your wish is my command. I'll be on any time. Just give me a few days' warning so I can jiggle the schedule, and I will be on whenever you wish. And when you post yeah. this one or whatever you do with it, let me know so I can share it. I absolutely will. Ben, where can people find you? And where can they find if they want to join your Mentoring Dynamics program? Let's tell people about that well, before I let you go. Just uh, send me an email. My email is bfg3. B is in Ben, F is in Frank, G is in Gay, the numeral three, at directcon, D-I-R-E-C-T-C-O-T. N, as in November, dot net. Just send me an email and say you want to talk about the Mentoring Dynamics program, and we can set it up. Now, as far as getting the Closers series of books, and if you're, in, if you're not in selling, don't get them. It's a waste of time. 
if you are in stone, no, no, I want... I think they're not a waste of time. I don't consider myself to be in selling, although obviously I'm lying to myself every day. But these books, to me, are really, these books are so important, and there's so many different things that you can take. We're, look, we're all in selling, whether we're in direct selling or not. So I'm going to argue with you on that. Get the books. Uh, I'm a husband. I've been trained well. Yes, ma'am. Good. Uh, and So anyway, here's how you do that, if you choose to. Uh, there's a place that sells them for less than I do. You get special pricing and free shipping in the United States. And we cut a deal internationally also. But you go to stores, S-T-O-R-E-S dot eBay dot com slash forward slash, I guess, Ronzoni Books, all all one word, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E Books, B-O-O-K-S. So stores.ebay.com forward slash Ronzoni Books. And there they, if you don't know the details or what are the closures, an explanation for all of them, including the brand new one, Closures Part 5, which we just started shipping, I think, a week ago. Yeah, I have one, two, and three. It was um, Paul Democrito, I think his name is. He's been my guest as well. Ben, thank you for for spending so much time with me. Uh, first of all, we had to postpone it an hour because my microphone didn't work. And then I've kept you oh, almost 50 minutes late. Thank you for doing that. You're one of my favorite people. I could listen to you all day long and I know that everything that you've shared with our audience today there's just been all kinds of wonderful tidbits and things to think about now or later come back and listen to this as often as you can well bless you that's very kind of you and being the southerner with an interesting life I got lots more to talk about whenever you're ready Oh, I, I will be hollering. So tell Gigi to look for me. I'll be waving at her going, can you make Ben come over and play with me? <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> and since you told me she would say yes, I'm good to go. Well, listen, oh, everybody. Yeah, I know. She's when, so sweet. Uh, she was walking through here not too long ago, and when you said uh, I could listen to you all day long, she nodded her head, meaning go ahead. Take it off me. <laughs> I don't see. I think you're misunderstanding what she was thinking. <laughs> we'll see. Listen, everybody, before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and go find those other two podcasts. Just look for us anywhere you consume your podcast. You can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. And if you're following me, on social media, you I have all the links. I have the links to find his books. I find the I have the links for this. Just if you can't find it on the internet, which I find hard to believe, just contact me and I'll make sure you're heading in the right direction. Ben, thank you. I adore you. I love Gigi. Thank you so much. Bless you, Denise. It's an honor to be with you. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 